and I want to know where all the snow is, don't you? <laughs> when I heard that weather forecast last night, being a person from the East Coast in Maryland, I knew the circumstances and I knew what was going to happen. Now, if we see snow today, I just want you to know that it's not going to stay. Okay? It's 37 degrees. Now, that would be a miracle, wouldn't it? That would be a miracle. It might lay on the ground and a couple other places like that on the grass, but uh, it's just been too warm, you know. So if it had been 30 degrees for the past week or so, and it snowed, it would get us. So don't ever allow, don't ever make a decision. Well, I'm not going to come to church because of fear. Don't make decisions based on fear. You ever heard that before? Uh, just trust the Lord, be careful, and He'll take care of us. Okay, well, let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation. And we now come to a church that is located in the smallest of the seven cities of Asia Minor. The church of Philadelphia. But although it is small in size, it's a very important city. Because Philadelphia was the last stop on the trade route to the eastern section of Asia Minor. Last stops are a very important place. You ever see those signs? Last stop to get gas before you go across to a desert or something? If you don't stop, you're in trouble. So that makes it a very important place. And you know what happens when you go to that last stop to buy the gas? The gas is what? Cheaper? No, it has it costs more. And everything costs more because there's no other places to stop. Well, because of that, this city uh, had wealth. Now, it took its name from a Lydian king. Now, Lydia was an empire way back in the 6th century BC. A Lydian king named Attalus II, who was also known as Philadelphus. King Attalus was also known as Philadelphus because of his great love for his brother. And as a result, this city took the name Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia is located about 25 or 30 miles southeast of Sardis, the city that we saw last week, and it sits on a major fault line, like the Andreas Fault. And in 17 AD, along with its sister city of Sardis, it was flattened to the ground. The entire city was destroyed. And uh, very much like Haiti. It, the earthquake that took place a year ago. You see what the devastation is? Look at it a year later. Does it look any better? No. But in the case of Philadelphia, and in the city of Sardis as well, the emperor, Tiberius Caesar, came to their rescue. For some reason, he showed compassion on the city. And he rebuilt it from the ground up in a very short period of time. And then he decreed a, max, a tax moratorium for five years. They didn't have to pay taxes for five years in that city. And as a result, the people were so grateful that they changed the name of Philadelphia to New Caesarea, Neo-Caesarea, in honor of the emperor for what he had done. Now, it was a temporary name, but they changed it to honor this man. Now, this city of Philadelphia was destroyed by an earthquake a second time in 60 AD. 
And in between 17 AD and 60 AD, there were a whole bunch of other earthquakes that shook the city uh, to its foundations. And as a result, every time there was a small earthquake where the city shook, the people would flee the city uh, for safety. And then when they would return, many of their houses had been destroyed, they would have to live in makeshift houses. <coughs> Uh, they would live in tents, just like the people in Haiti are living today, a year after the earthquake. And that's how the people in Philadelphia had to live after, 60, after uh, these minor earthquakes took place. Now, this area of Philadelphia was known for two major things. <clears throat> Number one was the wool, leather, and textile industry. <clears throat> this was a major supplier of wool different kinds of textiles and leather. Now, you know from the past lessons that when you have this kind of industry, you have something else associated with it. You've got unions. You've got guilds. And in the Roman Empire, those unions weren't like unions we have today. Every guild had a patron god. And every union or guild meeting included a meal. And every meal included a sacrifice to that God so that the industry would continue to prosper. You wanted to make sure of this. But it was also known for a second thing. It had extensive grape vineyards. It was the Napa Valley of Asia Minor. And as a result of that, this town was very wealthy. Now, when you have an industry that involves crops, to make sure that you have good crops every year, guess what you do? You sacrifice to a god, don't you? And in Asia Minor, the god of wine was Bacchus. And so they had these tremendous Bacchus feasts and festivals, and they would make these sacrifices to this god. Well, by the time this of this writing, which is in the 90s AD, there's a new emperor, and his name is Domitian. And he makes a decree that the great crops are to be cut in half because he wants corn grown for his soldiers. So that took a great amount of money out of this city. And it's facing a financial downturn, just like we're having in America today. And then he imposed heavy taxes upon the city. So the people in this city are having a difficult time living, and they have to decide what they want to do. And besides this, you have all these different temples to the gods. Okay? So that's the basic background for understanding this text. And without understanding what we just said, you wouldn't understand the word in this text. Oh, you'd understand the words, but you wouldn't understand their meaning. They would not have their significance. So look how Jesus uh, identifies himself in chapter 3 and verse 7. To the angel or messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write these things. Says he who is, now watch how he identifies himself. He who is holy and who is true. First of all, he identifies himself by his character. Now literally in the Greek text it says, write these things. He, he who is the holy one and he who is the true one. These are titles, Old Testament titles, for God. 
So Jesus is identifying himself with God, and he therefore he has the authority over the earth. And you're going to see how this works out. And then he identifies himself according to his power or his ability. Look what he says in the middle of verse 7. He who has the key of David. He who opens, meaning with that key, and no one shuts. And he shuts, he locks something with that key. And no one opens. Now what in the world does this mean? That he has, in verse 7, the key of David. Now this is a direct reference. This is a quote from Isaiah 22. And without understanding Isaiah 22, this means absolutely nothing. He has the key of David. He opens and no one shuts. And he shuts and no one opens. So in order for us to understand this statement, we need to go to Isaiah 22. So I want you to turn over there. And we come to one of the most remarkable passages in the Old Testament. One that very few people have read or understood. Isaiah chapter 22. And when you get there, go down to verse 15. Isaiah 22 and verse 15. And you'll see probably a title over that section. It says something like this. The Judgment of Shebna. Anybody see something like that in your Bible? Maybe yours doesn't have a title. But it's about a man named Shebna. Look what it says in verse 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Go proceed to this steward. To Shebna. That's the steward's name. Who is over the house. Uh, Shebna was the man who was over the house of David. When it says over the house, it means he is uh, the person who runs the house of David. He runs uh, the empire for David. The house of David is the kingdom of God. It's Israel. That's what that house is. It's the house of David. And he runs the empire for David. He is the CEO of the empire. Although David's the king. You, know, you don't think David made every little decision, do you? Shebna made all the decisions. He had the authority over the government. I don't know what that would be like in our government, but... You know, a president has a chief of staff, and he usually makes all the major decisions regarding at least the office of the presidency uh, in, you know, in the office space. But this man was basically in charge of the entire government. But he was a crook. And he used his authority for personal gain, and he put his relatives in key offices. And so God delivers a thus saith the Lord against Shebna. An oracle against Shebna. And he says he's going to remove Shebna and replace him with someone else over the house of David. And look at verse 20. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe, Shebna, he's going to get your robe, and I will strengthen him with your belt. And these were all special clothes that the head of the house wore, the house of David wore. I will commit your responsibility into his hand, 
He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now look at verse 22. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder so he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one will open. There's the quote from Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 3 verse 7. So we have this guy, Eliakim, who's going to take Shebna's place. And what does God say he's going to do? He's going to put a key in verse 22. Give him the key of the house of David. He's going to lay it where? On his shoulders. Well, that means you've ever seen a graduation ceremony. The president has a great big medallion. And what do they do? They put it over his shoulders. And there it is. And when you see that medallion hanging over this president's shoulders, you know there's the man in charge. So to have the key over the house of David laying on your shoulders, probably symbolic language, but what it means is that this is the man who has the authority. And when he makes a decision, no one can reverse it. He opens a door, and guess what? It stays open. He says, close that door. No, we're not going to do that. It stays closed. And this is the man who's going to have the authority over the kingdom of God. So here we have this key called on his shoulders. Now, he's not going to have this job forever, is he? Will he die one day? Everybody dies. And so God predicts, makes a prophecy about his replacement. And look what it says in verse 23. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. He's not going to be removed from this office. He will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory. And this is talking about his replacement. Let me read that again in verse 23. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father. And so this man's going to, as long as he is on earth, he's going to be secure in this position. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all the vessels of small quantity from the cups and all the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, that peg will be fastened in a secure place, which is fastened in a secure place, will be removed. It's going to be a dying when it's removed. It's when he dies. It will be cut down and fall. And the burden that was on it will be cut off, says the Lord who has spoken. So there's going to come a time when this man's going to be replaced. Now, when you go back to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, here's what Jesus is doing. Look what Jesus says there. He says... In the middle of the verse, these things says he who is holy and true. He, now remember it's Jesus speaking, but look how he describes himself. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and he shuts and no one opens. Jesus now claims that he has the authority over the nation of Israel and over the kingdom of God. And that's why Isaiah, when it predicts the arrival of the Messiah says, 
and the government shall be upon his what? His shoulders. And uh, the angel says in the beginning of Luke, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus claims that he has, he uses this language, and the people who read this would understand that he has authority over God's kingdom. He is the one that God has chosen to rule his house. And then look what Jesus says. I know your works. He's examined the church. He said, I know everything that you do. Nothing escapes my gaze. Then he says this. Now watch this. Look, behold, see, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Hey, does that fit back with verse 7? I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Evidently he has a key, symbolically, and he's opened the door and no one is going to be able to shut that door. Now, what do we know about this open door? Well, first of all, what's it say there in verse 8? I've set before you an open door. The door is in front of them. You see where it's located? He says there's a door right in front of you. Now, that's caused many people to think this is a door of evangelism. I don't think that at all. His key to open and close has nothing to do with evangelism. What does he what is his authority over? It's over the house of God, over the house of David, over the kingdom of God. I think he's opening a door to the kingdom to these people, as I, you'll see in the rest of this passage. And he says, no one can shut it. There are many people who are trying to shut these Christians out of a relationship with God. Now, if he has a door in front of them in verse 8, then he expects them to go through it. He says, that door is open and you can walk right through it. And they're supposed to go through it. Now he tells why he's opened the door for them. Look what it says in the middle of verse 8. Because you have what? You can't even open. You couldn't open the door for yourself. He's the one who has to open the doors of the kingdom. You have little strength. And guess what? I've opened the door for you. Here's a reason why I've opened the door for you. Because you have kept my word. That means you've guarded my word. You've kept true to the word of God, the gospel. And look at the third reason at the end of verse 8. And you've not denied my name. Now, what does that mean? You've not denied my name. It doesn't mean they just went out and say, We deny Jesus. What does it mean to deny Jesus' name? In the context of this city and the context of the first century Asia Minor. It means you've not gone to the guild meetings. You've not gone to the temples and say, Caesar is Lord. You've not done that. Because to do that is to deny Jesus' name. Are you with me? Is this what it's been about every week? That's what it means to deny his name. To say Caesar's Lord is to deny that Jesus is Lord. These people have refused to do that. Many other people in the city have done it, but not these people, and therefore a door to the kingdom is open to them. The door of salvation is open to them. So he makes this pronouncement. Now he makes another pronouncement in verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan 
who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, what this tells us is that in the city of Philadelphia, there is a group of Jewish people. They have a synagogue. He calls it a synagogue of Satan. Same phrase he used earlier in his letter to the church, to the about the uh, synagogue of Satan when he was writing to the church at Smyrna. These are Jews. We say, we're Jews, we're Jews. Abraham's our father. And Jesus says, no, Satan is your father. And here's how you know Satan is your father, because what are these people doing? They're compromising, and they are going into these meals, and they are committing idolatry. They are offering sacrifices to idols, which behind those idols are demons. So here is a group of people who say they are Jews. We are of the house of David. And he says what? No, you're not. You'll never get in. I've got the key. I'll shut that door and you don't get in. But here is these faithful believers who have not denied his name. And he says, I've set before you an open door. And so he says, one day these people will recognize it, and they will fall at your feet, and they will worship, and they will know that I have loved you, that they have been deceived. They have chosen their own way. And then he makes a third pronouncement in verse 10. Look what he says. Behold, or because, rather, because you've kept my command to persevere. You have to overcome. You have to continue in the faith. You don't give up. You continue to protect the gospel. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world because you have kept my command to persevere I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world and here is where most popular Bible commentators make their mistake they equate that phrase, hour of trial, which will come upon the whole earth, as the Great Tribulation. It has absolutely nothing to do with the Great Tribulation. And they say, oh, that's the Great Tribulation. All believers are going to be kept out of the Great Tribulation. He's going to keep us from the Great Tribulation. It's going to come on all the world. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? But it can't be. Now, if I gave you ten minutes to tell me why it couldn't be so, you'd come up with the answer yourself. I'd tell everybody around the table from where the classroom, come up and tell me three reasons why it can't be the Great Tribulation. Guess what? Every table would give me the right answer. If you just looked at the text. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you the answer. Okay? <laughs> now watch this. <clears throat> Who does he say will be kept from this hour of trial? In verse 10. You. Because you've kept my commandment to persevere. You at the church at Philadelphia. I will keep you from the hour of trial. So who is going to be kept? The believers at the church at Philadelphia. Now, 
This trial is going to come on the whole world. What does that mean? What's the whole world at the time of John's writing in 95 AD? It's the Roman Empire. God says, I am going to bring a trial upon the Roman Empire. Everybody who lives in the Roman Empire is going to be tested. Notice it's just an hour. It's a short period of time. And I'm going to bring a test upon everyone in the Roman Empire to determine, to test them and determine their allegiance. Where is their allegiance going? Does their allegiance go to Christ as Lord or does their allegiance go to Caesar as Lord? Those who say Caesar is Lord are going to be judged. And that's what chapters 4 through 19 are all about. It's what's happening in the first century under the emperor Domitian. And people side with him and his name, his symbolic name is placed on their foreheads and they identify with Domitian, this evil emperor. But he says, you know, you're not going to fall for that. And so he's talking about a testing that's going to come upon the Roman Empire, which I believe is chapters 4 through 19. You'll see how all that plays out in the weeks ahead. Now look what he says in verse 11. Behold, I am coming quickly. And immediately says, ah, second coming. No. No. It's nothing to do with the second coming. This has to do with his coming and judging the Roman Empire and bringing about this test. How do you know that, you say? Well, because uh, every other place it's used, it's the same thing. Remember back in chapter 1 and verse 3? Look over there. Chapter 1 and verse 3. See if you can just follow me here. Look at the end of verse 1. First of all, he talks about, let me read verse 3. Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. That's the reading of the prophecy in those churches. And keep the things which are written in it for what? The time is near. These are things that are going to happen real quick after the writing of this book. Not something that's going to happen 2,000 years later. Now look over at chapter 5. Look at verse chapter 2 and verse 5. Brother. Chapter 2 and verse 5. Look what it says. And here he's writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And you do those first works, or else I will what? Come quickly to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place, unless you, the church at Ephesus, repent. you see that? I come quickly? Is that talking about the second coming, or is he coming talking about the church at Ephesus? Punishing the church at Ephesus. Look down at verse 16, chapter 2 and verse 16. Look what he says to the church at Smyrna. Repent, or else I'll come where? To you, quickly. And I'll fight against those with the sword of my mouth. Look who he's coming to. The church. You see what he's doing? He's not talking about the second coming here. He's talking about coming to the church and getting things straight. Look at verse 25. Chapter 2, 25. Church at Thyatira. Behold, uh, look, verse 25. But hold fast what you have, what? Till I come. He keeps talking about coming to these churches. Coming to these churches. Look at chapter 3 and verse 3. Church in Sardis. 
Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. This is verse 2. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, now you have received what you have received and heard, how you received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon, look, you as a thief, quickly, see? and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. And then, of course, we have chapter 3 and verse 11 that we just read. And then also next week you'll see in chapter 3 and verse 20, look what he says. This is for next week, church at Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock at the church. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will what? I'll come in. So what we're talking about is not the second coming here when he uses these phrases. He's talking about coming to the church. And what he's going to do, he's going to protect, he's going to come, make his manifestation visible, and he's going to come and protect these believers who have been faithful from this testing that's going to weed out the wheat from the tares, in a sense. And they're going to be exposed for what they are. And so, I think that's what you need to understand when you see that. And then he says in the middle of verse 11, he says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, in chapter 3 and verse 11. Because he's coming, coming quickly, look what he says. Hold fast what you have. And that would definitely be the gospel and the faith. Hold fast what you have. Why? So that no one may take your crown. Persevere so that you don't end up with that other crowd who deny me. And you end up not having this victor's crown. Persevere. Overcome. Be victorious. You receive the victor's crown. Deny me. Offer the sacrifices to idols. You don't get the crown. You side with Caesar. And then he makes a pledge. Look at verse 12. He who overcomes, that's in that church, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. In the house of God. Look at this. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar. Notice that word. I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Now here's a pledge that he makes. If you are an overcomer, he says to this church, you continue to hold the faith. Don't deny me. You will be a pillar in the house of God. You will dwell, and it says you won't go out. Does it say that too? Verse 12? Or 11, whatever it is? 12. He shall go out no more. You'll be in the house of God. You'll be in the kingdom of God. And that will be your permanent dwelling place. You'll be secure in the house of God, in the kingdom of God. And you won't have to go out. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what the psalmist said. Now, think about this. What is a pillar? A pillar is something that symbolizes strength and permanence in a temple. But, for these people in Philadelphia, when the earthquakes hit, what happened to the temple? What happened to the pillars? They just crumbled. And what do the people have to do when an earthquake hit? They had to flee the city for their lives, didn't they? 
And then when they came back, they went out and then they came back and they had to live in tents like they do in Haiti, don't they? Makeshift places. Jesus says, the person who overcomes, I will make him, in verse 12, a pillar in the temple of God. Everything's going to be shaken, but that's one thing that's not shaken. That's the temple of the kingdom of God. And he shall go out no more. So there's two kinds of people in the church. Those who hold the name of Christ, hold faithful to the gospel, and those who will abandon Christ. Two kinds of people. Pillars who stand fast, and caterpillars. Go in and out, go in and out of the temple. And he says, the person who overcomes becomes a pillar in God's temple, will not be moved. I shall not be, I shall not be moved. Just like a tree planted by the water. That's just another imagery. And then he says, and I will write, look what he says in the middle of verse 12. This is really great. I will write on him the name of my God. Number one, Jehovah. And the name of the city of God. Number two, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from out of heaven from God. And that's the kingdom of God on earth. We're going to have be part of that. And I will write on him my new name. So, he says, the person who overcomes will be identified with me. The Father, and me, and the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. Uh, writing a name, by the way, speaks of ownership. It speaks of identity. The, the high priest had uh, God's, says, a holiness to the God right on his forehead on the mitre that he wore in the Old Testament. It identified the priest as God's priest, ruled by God, the person who submitted to God. And so Christ is going to give us his identity. It's going to, this is a statement that says we're holy his. And when you read in chapter 7 and chapter 14, you're going to see that we have the name of God on our forehead. And you're going to see this again in uh, chapter 22. It says his name shall be on their forehead. So Christ is giving us his name. We'll have Christ's name. It's his new name. It's his new name. Does it say that? I'll write on him my new name. Revelation 19 tells us that name, by the way. He had a name that no one knew. Just read it one day. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But we will take Christ's name just like a bride takes her husband's name. We'll take Christ's name just like a bride takes her husband's And that means that he's committed to us, and we're committed to him, and we're one. There's an identity there. Remember what happened to Philadelphia after the earthquake hit? Tiberius Caesar rebuilt it from the ground up. They took a new name. They took a new name. They said, from now on, we are Neo-Caesarea. We're the new Caesarea. And just as that city took a new name, so we're going to be given a new name out of our gratitude for the one who rescued us, just like Philadelphia took a new name out of gratitude for the one who rescued us. You see why you need to understand all the background. Without understanding the background, none of it makes sense. Well, it makes sense to some degree. But it really doesn't make 
sense in its historical context. And then he says this in verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to those churches. So this message applies to all seven churches. Raise your mind. And it has application for all churches, for all ages. Those of us who keep his word, those of us who remain faithful, those of us who are overcomers, we too become pillars in the temple of God. And we too receive this crown. Next week, uh, we're going to look at the church of Laodicea. The church that's lukewarm, which by the way, has nothing to do with what you think. Lukewarm doesn't mean lukewarm the way you think of lukewarm. Okay? Lukewarm means something totally different. I'm going to give you a hint. Either you want hot water. That's good. Or you want cold water. And that's good. But what you don't want is lukewarm water. So when he says you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, think about that this week. The overcomer is the one who remains faithful to Christ no matter what the cost, even, even to the point of death. And if we do that, still we're not defeated. Even though we die, we too will receive the crown of life because he resurrects us and we receive the kingdom of God. Okay, we'll stop there. We'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we see from the history of a city and what it does in its everyday life. Uh, Jesus uses those words. He uses imagery uh, that makes sense to those people. And it's so important that we understand this. Oh, Lord, help us to be people like those that Jesus charges, those who have not denied his name, who have not bowed the knee to the culture, the society, we have remained true to you, we've held on to the gospel, we've protected that gospel. We've, we've held fast. Even though we have a little strength left, uh, nothing depends upon us at the end. It depends upon you. You're the one who opens the door, you're the one who keeps it open, you're the one that makes the promise, you're the one who gives us the grace to live for Christ. We thank you for it. Amen.